Welcome to episode 31 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. We're going to talk about art, poetry and film today, and who better to start off with than our first guest, Charles Samaray-Smith. He's been a major figure in the art world since 1994, and he became director of the National Portrait Gallery. In 2002, he left to become director of the National Gallery. And in 2007, he went on from there to the Royal Academy, where he served until 2018. He is truly the Jose Mourinho of art galleries. (laughs) He's written widely on architecture and the history of museums, and with his impeccable credentials, he needs no further introduction. We're honoured to have him on our podcast. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Ed. Very nice to be here. Well, it's a privilege to be talking to you, Charles. And and we're here to talk about your new book, The Art Museum in Modern Times. Now, the book itself is a bit of an art exhibit, beautifully and cleanly presented, full of fascinating photographs. And it begins in 1939 with the Museum of Modern Art in New York and ends with the West Bund Museum in Shanghai, which opened in 2019. Now, in a nutshell, your thesis is that museums no longer have a duty to provide scholarship and education, but should offer pleasant spaces for self-motivated individuals to enjoy the art in their own way. Now, this didn't seem to be too gloomy an outcome until your conclusion, which broadly is that art museums are now truly under attack. You believe the purpose of art museums needs to be entirely redefined for them to have a future. So we've obviously got loads to talk about, but start by telling our listeners what set you off on this odyssey and how you chose the 41 museums you did. Okay, so... I've been interested in the architecture of museums ever since I went to the Portrait Gallery because the 1994, when I went to the Portrait Gallery, was when the lottery became available. It opened up, I think, in November 1993. And suddenly you had the opportunity to do something quite adventurous. We appointed Jeremy Dixon and Edward Jones, who were working on the Covent Garden development at the time. And I really enjoyed it. I found it very exciting. And I felt that by doing a big building project, you could change the way people looked at museums and experience them. I mean, I'm obsessed by sort of museum architecture. Your the, Part of the thesis of your book is that the Americans changed everything with the Museum of Modern Art. So we, we've got our sort of American cousins to thank for democratising the museum. The Museum of Modern Art now presents itself for good reasons as being very democratic. But Originally, like many American museums, it was done by a very small elite group of rich individuals. And Alfred Barr is one of the heroes of the book. I mean, I think he was incredibly impressive. He was appointed in 1929 to run a new museum when he was himself only in his late 20s. And then he was unseated as director after about 10 years, but managed to hang on as chief curator. And much of the character and I think the intelligence and the range of artefacts collected by the Museum of Modern Art were due to him. And um, you contrast it slightly with the German approach, which is much more scholarly. I think there's that line about how museums are so much better without visitors. As sort of, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they were treated as temples. I mean, as the British Museum still is, Robert Smirk designed it as if it was a Greek temple. And Schinkel, who did the Altus Museum in, in Berlin, those were really the two models for what museum buildings should be. And the German tradition from the late 19th century especially was very scholarly and rather academic. If you look at the three 
museums that you've run each has its own sort of wonderful architectural story. There's obviously the the National Portrait Gallery, which you've talked about. The National Gallery had, of course, this enormous row uh, where the original extension was described by Prince Charles as a monstrous carbuncle. I think you would find a younger generation of people interested in architecture now very admiring once again. Of the interior or or, or the exterior? My view is that the galleries upstairs, which were the central focus for the project, have worn very well. They're still very well lit. They're very generously proportioned. They work brilliantly as galleries. I have some reservations, which is, of course, why they're planning to redo the entrance. And the staircase is perhaps a bit too exaggerated as a way of getting up to the top floor. But the outside, I I think, has worn well. If you think how tricky Trafalgar Square and doing something alongside William Wilkins's classical revival building, it's it's clever. And then the Royal Academy, of course, fused the ancient and modern, as it were. Yeah, one one of my readers said uh, I've slightly overdosed on David Chipperfield. And David Chipperfield does figure very prominently because the Noah's Museum, I think, is a completely wonderful project, which is a version of what we did at the Royal Academy, although he hates the two to be put alongside one another. But it's the same thing where you have a 19th century building where you respect the 19th century architecture and retain it, but then you develop it in a modern and contemporary way, not in a pastiche way. And I think David Chipperfield is very brilliant at doing that. What is your sort of considered view now of the sort of place of the museum in our society. Do you think the buildings need to radically change in a, in a digital age? It's interesting, for example, in Florence, they're talking about diffusing the collection into 100 buildings. They have the, I think the director of the Uffizi said, you know, he doesn't mind people charging through to take a selfie. Is that is the way that people engage with objects in a museum now changing? Is that something that you find slightly dreadful or go with the flow? I go with the flow. I mean, I was interested, by the way, Charlotte summarized the conclusion (laughs) of the book, because because I tried to resist making it a tract, and I didn't want it to feel like a lament for the Old Style Museum. So last February, I I, just for lockdown, my last visit was to Hobart. Oh, wow. And Mona is this very inventive and in a way, adversarial museum, trying to form a new type of museum using new technology. And they have no labeling at all. It's treated very much as a visitor experience. The architecture is very exciting. And I think David Walsh, who did it, thought that people like me would be very disapproving of it. And indeed, when it opened, some people were disapproving of it. But I must say, I thought it used technology really interestingly, because it it uses handheld devices in such a way that you can get whoever you want to talk about the objects. And the technology picks up where you are in the museum. And it means you're not dependent on a traditional labeling system. And I think labeling can be rather dull. So that using technology in that way, I'm very in favour of. I know you you think that it's happened to museums, that they have become more entertainment spaces than great temples to scholarship. But I wasn't quite sure what you you, you did think about that in the end and, and how you, necessary you saw that to for them to survive and go into the future. Okay, okay so I'm a bit ambiguous. 
because a bit of me looks back on museums being more scholarly and academic and places where people went in order to find things out and learn about things. And I think that some of that has been lost. On the other hand, I'm in favor of, I, I mean, Mona, I thought was really interesting in the way it engaged audiences. They get, you know, the equivalent of the entire population of Tasmania's visitors, uh, because Tasmania is a difficult place to get to, and people come from all over it's Australia, and it's exciting. It's it's an adventure. And, and so that if you pick up an ambivalence, yes, I'm a bit ambivalent. I mean, I know perfectly well, and people have pointed out, I thought I hadn't made it too obvious, but the original Tate Modern was quite coherent and logical and lucid, and you knew where you were, and you knew what you, where you were going. And then the Blavatnik building was added. And I think deliberately, it, the, the architects, the same architects, said that it's called lofts and caves. And that is a good description of what it is. And you could say it's interesting because you have to explore it and you don't know quite where you are. But as an architectural historian, I find those two experiences up against one another not totally satisfactory. Yeah, I mean, changing the subject slightly, I was also really interested in in what you said about you were frustrated by what you saw as the failure of museums to respond to George Floyd's death and the legacy of slavery in a systematic rather than a haphazard way. So what do you think they could have done differently, do you think? Okay, so you're referring to the final conclusion. I mean, the last chapter was an attempt to summarize what I felt my findings were on the basis of the case studies. And that is more generalized. And then I delivered the text on 31st of March, a week after COVID. And I realized that actually COVID was going to have a big impact. And yes, I put some of the negative impacts, which were obvious when I wrote the conclusion in April. And then I added a sentence in June, which was the last sentence I wrote about the effect of George Floyd, when it was obvious that public institutions had not done as much, and I include myself, the issues which were raised in June by Black Lives Matter demonstrated that there were all sorts of issues to do with you know, the, like membership of trustee bodies, the the diversity of staff, the diversity of the program. I, I, I mean, I can see that the academy is doing things which in retrospect we probably should have done earlier. So that when I said that institutions should have been more responsive, that was my reaction to what was, I felt, the mood, and in a way remains the mood, that many of these things should have been done earlier. And what's your view of the um, sort of culture war at the moment in terms of should people be getting 10 years for tearing down a statue or should or should the National Trust be criticised for doing this colonial research? I, I'm in favour of people doing the research. I, I went in the period when we were allowed to go to the British Museum in October to see what they had done in terms of their displays in which they make clear how things were acquired. And I think people are interested in that. They're right to be interested. I and agree. I think the British Museum is correct to respond to that. So I'm totally in support of that. On the other hand, some of the more extreme views of restitution and 
treating every aspect of what the museum is as pure, purely a product of white suprematism, uh, I'm less sympathetic to. Firstly, obviously, the National Portrait Gallery is now going to be closed for three years and a new front entrance. So presumably, given that the National Portrait Gallery is your first head role, as it were, you, you've taken a keen interest. This is a sort of closing of the circle. I've tried not to take an interest, but I can't help but taking an interest. <laughs> in, uh, it's the truth in what Nick Cullinan is planning, because I th- remember only too vividly the opening on the 6th of May uh, 2000, when it felt we had revolutionised the look and feel and experience of the National Portrait Gallery. And obviously, 20 years later, Nick comes along and thinks, oh gosh, all of this is frightfully traditional and old-fashioned and the Victoria- there are too many Victorians and so on and so forth. And, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it's reinterpreted and redisplayed. And the annoying question is, what is your favourite museum? The one I really enjoyed going to, and is, I think, symbolically very significant to the book, is Naoshima off the coast of Japan. It's partly because it's such hell to get to. Yes. <laughs> you know, you have to go on the train from Tokyo and then you get off at some provincial station and then you get a car which takes you to the coast and then you go to the get a boat. And so it, you can't do it as a day trip from anywhere. You have to stay overnight. And the fact of staying overnight means you experience the museum in a slightly different way from an average day trip. And I think it's very clever the way it uses the environment. And they built a hotel alongside the museum. And so you experience the museum in depth. Do you feel optimistic about the future of art museums? Or do you think there's an awful lot of work still to be done to keep them going after the pandemic? I'm I'm optimistic about their ability to respond and react and change. And I mean, I'm very aware that there's a new generation of museum directors who are doing things differently in ways which are interesting. But the fact is, it's obvious they will have to adapt because there'll be less funding. And I suspect there'll be many fewer building projects and probably exhibitions will have to be reined in a bit. But but they'll find new ways of attracting audiences. Tell us about you have the cult <laughs> blog that my mother is devoted to and I'm devoted to. <laughs> As you wander uh, the East End. So quite a long time ago in 2014, my PA when I was at the Royal Academy said, why don't you do a blog? At that stage, I was not an early person as Ed was in new technology and I didn't know what a blog was. <laughs> and uh, she set it up and she thought it would be a very good way of telling staff what I was up to and communicating with staff. And actually, I think it was completely hopeless in that way. I suddenly discovered that what I really enjoyed doing at weekends was going around and photographing buildings in the East End. The trouble is I've photographed them all now so that it's slightly less architectural. At the moment, it's all about museums and what I'm reading and what I'm thinking and about the book. It changes according to whatever I'm doing. Oh, well, that's brilliant. And the book is absolutely beautiful. I'm really pleased that you appreciate the quality of production because that is something which I can promote vigorously. It's been published by Thompson Hudson and they use Pentagram and a particular designer in Pentagram, Harry Pierce. And I think he's done the most beautiful job. I think in that way, I benefited from lockdown because from May through to July, I have a feeling that he was sitting at home 
trying to make sure that the placement of each of the photographs was done to best effect and the typography and the layout and where the chapter headings come. And I think it does have that sense of having been very, very carefully worked on and laid out so that it's a pleasure to look at. It is. I can I can absolutely back you off on that. It's beautiful for anyone who hasn't seen it. Very good. Thank you so much, Charles. Some of you might have heard of the British artist Rachel Heller, the daughter of the great gallerist Angela Flowers. Rachel has Down syndrome and her work has won numerous awards and is internationally acclaimed. But for most artists with learning disabilities, it's not easy to attain visibility. Now, all that might be changing thanks to three learning disability arts organisations which are joining forces. Action Space in London, Projectability in Glasgow and Venture Arts in Manchester. They've all teamed up to put on a series of three virtual exhibitions, which for obvious reasons is called Times Three. The first one, Electric Dreams, is curated by Manchester's Venture Arts and is on now. The other two organisations will also curate virtual shows over the next couple of months or so, allowing you to see the work of nine artists. So here to tell us about the initiative is the Director of Venture Arts, Amanda Sutton. Hello, Amanda. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's lovely that you come on today and it's great to have you. Now, I know your organisations have always supported each other, but by joining forces, you're finding more ways of placing your artist's work in mainstream situations. Now, you've told me that most disabled artists were lucky if they had their painting stuck up on a church wall or a community centre wall. But in 2018, the Whitworth acquired a piece of art by one of your artists, Barry Finan. I hope I've pronounced is that right? Yep, that's right. For their fine art collection. And another artist whose identity is still under wraps has recently had work bought for the government art collection. So you're obviously breaking down barriers into the mainstream. So can you start by describing for our listeners the kind of obstacles your artists have been facing and why this first Electric Dreams exhibition represents such a breakthrough. For many years, many, many years, uh, learning disabled people were sort of uh, in institutions or, or little seen, little heard, had no voice, if you like. So, yes, it's through sort of our work we'd like to sort of show how learning disabled people really have a very great place to play in the arts and we know that because we know the work that they make is just wonderful so yes this exhibition is one of it's one of the many things that we've been doing together over many years so a long time ago actually uh, projectability organized uh, a, an international uh, symposium of learning disabled artists studios which was which kind of really opened my eyes certainly to what could be possible so there were amazing studios from Finland Australia the US and when they, we all came together we realized that collectively we've really got something great to show it feels like things are moving apace and I'm a little bit worried that after sort of lockdown people people will that voice will be hushed again because uh, because the difficulties that museums and galleries and and so on are facing at the moment as well the capacity for people to program work of new artists and new work and different work is going to be severely limited just because people have had that our main galleries have had such a, a difficult time over uh, over over the uh, last year or so and also their programming is now a year two years behind there is the disability arts movement how are you different from the disability arts movement 
So we're very much part of the disability art movement, obviously, because all of our artists are disabled artists. But it always feels in a sense that, well, I've always felt that that we've got something more to give that um, and maybe sometimes within the learning disability arts movement, it's it's about and very rightfully so about campaigning and about activism. And I would say that many of our artists don't fit in within that activism model. They make art because they want to make art, because they have to make art, and they just yes. make art. So there doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily have that message behind it. But we are obviously totally behind the message. I know you've you've probably heard about the, the We Shall Not Be Removed campaign that's been happening over lockdown, which is about disabled artists remaining in view very much in their rights and being there after the pandemic. Tell us a bit more about that. So it was a, 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 right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was an initiative that was um, started up by Andrew Miller, amongst others. And it was just all the sort of cross arts organisations and artists coming together to just make a stand and sort of say, hey, we're here, you know. So how does what you're doing differ from Outside In? Outside In are an incredible organisation I was very privileged to be a part of recently. They are uh, an organisation who work with artists who face barriers to the art world. So that could be through disability or it could be through mental health or it could be through um, sort of artists who've maybe uh, been in prison. So a whole range of artists who might otherwise struggle to enter into the art world. So they do a great job of, they've got 3,000 artists on their galleries, they sell work, they have big exhibitions, they do artist development. So very much like what we might do for learning disabled artists, they do for a wider range of artists across the UK. I mean, I think I'll put this delicately, but I do think to a certain extent the disability arts movement has been eclipsed by the desire to promote, quite appropriately, of course, artists from ethnic minority backgrounds and also to get much more female representation from the arts. I remember, for example, having a discussion with the Government Art Collection recently about their desire to collect more female artists, which is obviously fantastic but it does seem to a certain extent i don't know whether you feel this that the disabled sort of come last in terms of these campaigns well i hope not <laughs> i think i think sort of uh, you asked the sort of question first of all about how does learning to how do learning disabled artists fit within that and i'd sort of say that's my worry is that learning disabled artists will come last within all of those movements and so sort of the fact that we have had such great successes for some of our artists and action space and projectability have also so uh, I think it's kind of joining forces to make sure that this, our, our sector within disability arts and within the whole of the art movement and obviously representation for women artists is crucial too, particularly now. Uh, so, yes, I mean, it's just our voices a learning disability artist voice. So tell us a bit about the exhibitions we're going to see, starting with Electric Dreams. Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know. It's all virtual at the moment. We decided to call it Electric Dreams because the work of the three artists involved, uh, who are Daniel Elms, who's a very young artist from Venture Arts, Declan Leslie, who's from Action Space, and Gary Turner, who's from Projectability. They all have a certain kind of dreamy 
dreamy feel about their work. And we thought as well, sort of, the the um, the way that people through lockdown, sort of, I don't know about you guys, but dreams have become really kind of a big thing. So it's kind of like their representations of dreams and hopes um, when faced with sort of being isolated um, because of the, the situation. And I think, yes, the, the work is just full of imagination and full of vitality and very, very different work as well. Do go and have a look. You can go via our website, which is www.adventurearts.org. To me, I've kind of found sort of virtual exhibitions quite difficult to see and usually navigate. Um, so we've made a film which makes it much easier. And the whole the whole um, exhibition, I think, is really brought to life by the interpretation of another of our learning disabled artists, Sally Hurst, who's got a kind of poetic way of kind of describing all the all the images. So, yes, I would urge people to go and have a look. Brilliant. Can't wait. Fantastic. It's on now, isn't it? Your electric dream started on the 11th of March and runs till when? It certainly is. It runs through until the next one launches, which will be in May. And following that in July, the the next one will come along. So it's three organisations doing three virtual exhibitions with uh, three artists in each each exhibition. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you very much. It's It's been great talking to you. Now, last Sunday, it was World Poetry Day, and to celebrate it, the award-winning and BAFTA-nominated filmmaker Jack Dewars has reimagined five of the world's oldest surviving poems through the medium of film. He made the five short films in lockdown. They're available for everyone to see on YouTube, and they illustrate five beautiful short poems from ancient Rome, China, Mesopotamia, India and Egypt. I can't recommend the films highly enough as a way of bringing these ancient classic poems vividly alive, and Jack's here to to tell us all about them. Good morning, Jack. Good morning. How are you today? Fine, thank you. We love the poetry on this podcast. We love poetry on this podcast. In fact, we've done a lot uh, on what a solace it's been to people in lockdown. So, for example, with Ali Aziri or William Seacart's Poetry Pharmacy. But those poems don't necessarily go back thousands of years. So I'm really interested to know why you chose to make films of these really ancient and almost by definition, anonymous poems? Mm, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I've always, you know, I've always loved poetry. I've always, uh, you know, been a kind of great devotee of the, um, you know, the way to unwind at the end of a day is is not necessarily put, to put the TV on, it's to pick something off a shelf. And I think uh, poetry is wonderfully transformative for that. But um, I always wanted to make something filmically with poetry, but it didn't, I didn't start out to kind of think, why should I do these on, you know, all these, these really ancient poems until I saw this wonderful little quotation, which I wish I could say fell out of a, a manuscript at the Bodleian Library or something. It didn't. I saw it on Instagram. But it read, <laughs> it read, and girls in silk, little fans in hand, frolic with fireflies in flight. And I thought, wow, that's absolutely beautiful. And then I looked underneath at the date and I did a double take because it said 7th century AD. And I couldn't believe it. And so um, I uh, I looked into it a bit more and it was by a, a Chinese poet called Du Fu. And this kind of led me down a bit of a rabbit hole of uh, ancient Chinese poetry. And I bought a book, which I've actually got in front of me, the, the Anchor Book of Chinese Poetry. And the one of the first poems in the book was a poem with a bit of a mouthful of a name, he waters his horse by a breach in the long wall. But it had the most vivid and extraordinary and visceral imagery. And I was floored when I saw that it was a good millennia older than that, uh, 120 BC. And so that really 
gave me the genesis of, of this project because I kept getting these images from this particular poem of uh, refugees and loss and separation. And that then that sort of began to form images in my mind and it is actually became one of the episodes in um, in our series. What I really liked about the series is that each one's so incredibly different. So you've got everything from the very tender love stories illustrating the ancient Egyptian love yeah. flower song written yeah. in 1400 BC. Extraordinary. Then you've got, you've got um, contemporary protest movements illustrating salutations of the dawn from India. You've got the Chinese poem you've talked about and perhaps my favourite just because it was so funny was... And My Heart, oh, which showed yeah. <laughs> a, a sort of young suburban American woman racing around in her car, articulating her frenzied crush. I mean, it could have been in a contemporary rom-com. It's and lovely. Yet in fact, where's that one from? Because that's from Mesopotamia in 1500 BC. Yeah, it's the oldest of the collection, which is so extraordinary when you consider, like, um, the actress Joanne Chu uh, gives this lovely performance in which she's sort of very dizzy, very kind of chaotic. You know, it's that lovely kind of feelings of butterflies in the stomach, you know, that she evokes so well. But it feels, as you say, it feels completely modern and, you know, and contemporary and relatable. And and um, that, to me, is just the most perfect example I can imagine of people don't fundamentally change. Once we understand that people in the past were people just like us and had feelings like us and experiences like us, we show that whatever we feel like we're going through, they went through worse, you know, and... Humanity came through it, society came through it, and we will be okay again. And so there was a certain comfort, I think, in presenting something like, silly though it is, you know, inconsequential though it is, some, some nice little film like that in a modern context, it just draws that line over the centuries it's going to be okay. I have thought if we do more, would we go a little forward in time? I did I did consider doing an Anglo-Saxon poem. Yes, I wondered about that. Beowulf yeah. is too long. Beowulf is too long. <laughs> now, there is one which uh, I think it's called The City. It's the most spooky and um, kind of affecting poem because it's it was written from the point of view of somebody in the Anglo-Saxon world looking at Roman ruins and thinking what a wonderful civilization must have been here and what happened to them you know why did they go why did they disappear and it's very kind of existential and if that can happen to them it can happen to us incredible imagery and I thought oh well hang on why don't I couple this with some shots taken in London you know during lockdown the kind of empty streets and everything like that and oh my god God, it was so depressing. <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't, I thought the time is wrong for that. You know, this is, um, give, give it some time too soon. So I, it's I got, it's that. got to be done. Yeah, it's be done. I, I think, amazing. I think we could with distance. I just think when we're in the middle of it, I felt the mood was needed to be a little bit more, you know, not necessarily upbeat, but hopeful. We're not depressed enough, Jack. <laughs> Really? You think so? <laughs> okay. we, we, we need something else. Anyway, look, we think it's absolutely brilliant what you've done. Well, thank and, you. Uh, it can stoke up some enthusiasm for poetry and also, as you said, reach out across the ages, as, as, as it were. Yes. So basically, where can we find them? Okay. Our listeners will want to will want to watch these films now. Well, uh, the quickest way is if you go to our website, which is inversefilm.uk. We're also on Facebook as Inverse Films and on Twitter and Instagram as Inverse Film without the S. Brilliant. You're a star. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you so much. Now, just before we go, and with everyone being so uncertain about travel restrictions this summer... 
don't despair because we've come across a rather wonderful outfit called Virtual Cultural Tours. They organise live, interactive, guided virtual walks with access to museums and sites that are currently closed. This week they did a walking tour of Florence and the next one on the 15th of April is a live virtual walking tour of the Jewish Quarter in Budapest, followed the following week by one of Lisbon. Go to their site arthistoryandfocus.com to see what else they're offering. Fantastically good value, just 10 quid a tour. They're going to be announcing lots more dates, including a tour of the Basilica of San Marco in Venice and of the Peggy Guggenheim there, which is one of my favourite museums in the world. It's obviously not quite the same thing as getting on a plane, but given we can't, I'm definitely booking him. Uh, yeah, it's definitely not the same as getting on a plane. <laughs> I mean, talk about, talk about clutching at straws there, Charlotte. Anyway, I'm sure it's, it's a very lovely. nice straw. <laughs> I'm sure it's lovely. Anyway, one thing you can go out and do as of Saturday is get to the wonderful Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Now, I visited the Yorkshire Sculpture Park when I was the Arts Minister, and I have to say it is absolutely wonderful. It's one of those places that more than lives up to expectations. So if you are in and around the area where the Yorkshire Sculpture Park is, it is just worth it. I've never, ever forgotten my visit. Absolutely loved it. Anyway, they've got a new exhibition by designer and maker Alison Milner called Decorative Minimalist. Explores the relationship between nature, as you'd expect, and the built environment, something we've all thought about a lot more since being in lockdown. So this 500-acre historic landscape is a wonderful place to go. But that really is all we've got time for this week. You know where to go to find details of everything we've talked about, countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, which is a must-listen to anyone interested in interior design. This week's Carol talks to the husband and design duo, Goddard Littlefair, whose work includes the Glen Eagles Hotel, where I have never been, and the new Mayfair Townhouse, just off Piccadilly. Where you have been. That's where we did the Great British Brands Awards. Oh, really? God, it's yes. a wonderful place. Yeah, yeah. And if you haven't listened to it already, you can still catch Michael Heyman's interview with Marie Guerlain, founder of Ondine, the company that makes beautiful non-toxic pans out of titanium. That's on our Great British Brands podcast in collaboration with Changemakers. And just add slash newsletter to our web address to sign up to weekly news from the magazine and monthly news from Great British Brands. See you next week. See you next week.